This is an RNZ podcast. After the Christchurch Mosque massacre on March the 15th last year, hundreds of articles about it were published in the media in the weeks and months that followed, and at times it was overwhelming for readers. The media banded together to agree on how to cover the trial, which in the end didn't happen because Brendan Tarrant pleaded guilty. But in other respects, they took different approaches to the question of how much detail people would want to know in their news reports. Researchers from Otago University have picked through hundreds of articles published by five major media outlets after the event. What did they find? Hayden Donnell takes a look. Journalists reporting on the March 15 terror attacks were faced with an unusually difficult moral conundrum. Their job, first and foremost, was to communicate as much information about the attacks as clearly as possible. But the terrorists who carried out the killings had obviously bargained on them publicising his ideas. He'd left a manifesto and had live-streamed his murders on social media. Notoriety was part of his plan. In the weeks that followed, news organisations wrestled with how they could avoid being complicit in the killer's agenda. There were few profiles of the man who carried out the shootings. Instead, most outlets wrote about heroic worshippers who tried to stop the attacks. They debunked conspiracy theories or interrogated victim support on when families would receive payments. Some organisations, including the spin-off, followed the lead of Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern and refused to name the killer altogether. Others, including RNZ, the New Zealand Herald, TVNZ and Stuff, committed to naming him sparingly. There were a few exceptions. The Herald on Sunday reported in depth on the killer, arguing it was necessary as people were searching for answers on his actions. But most outlets took extraordinary steps to deny him the attention he craved. According to new research from Otago University, that may have had an impact on the country's legislative response. Dr Susan Every Palmer is one of the researchers who analysed 749 New Zealand media stories relating to the shootings. She says the tenor of the coverage helped pave the way for gun control laws in the months following. Dr Every Palmer joined me to talk about her report. So we saw that media focused on uh, victims and society um, and risks to the public uh, with quite a lot of discussion about uh, the need for heightened security in New Zealand based on the fear of either retaliatory or copycat attacks. What we didn't see was a key focus on the perpetrator of the shooting. Now I remember at the time there was actually a lot of debate around this. There were some that said, you know, he's an important part of the story and we need to talk about him at least a little bit and others that said, look, just absolutely take him out of the story. Your analysis was that essentially that latter argument won out. Yeah, so it's not that he doesn't appear at all. It's just in only a small number of articles is he the key subject. Of those almost 750, in only 53, that was 7%, was he named. It's not like he was censored out of the picture, but it, it, it seems overall that people chose not to focus on him. And I understand that that was a combination of some editorial direction, uh, feedback from the public and people's own views about it. Um, The other thing maybe just to add is that we looked at print media. It may have been different um, on the radio and and talkback as well. You would have actually, in in your analysis, actually looked at a couple of editorials maybe from people that actually talked about why they were covering the attacks the way they were? Yes. Yes. So people recognised that they were being played by the shooter. 
the shooting itself wasn't this guy's end game. What he wanted was a platform. You know, he had deliberately stage managed his attack in a way to garner maximum attention. And people were just sickened by that. And I think that was part of the, the decision to say, look, we're not going to give this guy what he's wanting. Um, he's looking for notoriety. We're not going to give it to him. The aftermath of this, the media coverage after the attack actually played out a lot differently to how it usually does overseas, right? So can you say how the New Zealand media's approach to this differed from how mass shootings have been covered in other places? Sure. So most of the research comes from the United States and uh, studies have been done which have looked at the cycle of media reporting in which the first two uh, stages focus on the eyewitness accounts and the first reports. But then in the third and fourth stages of the media reporting, the identification of the shooter and descriptions of their personalities, their backgrounds, talking to people who know them, um, publication of their views, what they've written. So the media scramble to write as much um, as they can find out about the person responsible. And what we found was that um, in New Zealand, the reporting differed very much from that. And short-circuiting that phase of reporting, it actually you're, you're saying that actually changed how the entire aftermath of the attack played out, including in other spheres, not just the media, right? So what are some of the ways that the New Zealand response and the outcomes from the attack differed from how uh, the outcomes have differed overseas? Uh, we feel... Um, based on what happened and on looking at other research, that the media reporting was likely to have shaped public opinion about gun control, really, in New Zealand. A lot of the media reporting was about uh, the fact that the perpetrator had managed to get together this lethal arsenal of weapons legally. Public opinion shortly after the attack was high um, for change in New Zealand gun law. And why do you think the media organisation's decision to generally not name or sparingly name the shooter actually was important to this? Is it just that it kind of allows people to focus on more systemic causes rather than uh, individualising the attack? Exactly. So again, uh, overseas research has found that if the focus is on the bad guy, uh, that's less likely to lead to societal or legislative reform, whereas if uh, the narrative is on dangerous weapons, for example, then that garners support for legislative reform. Now, you have this hypothesis that this paved the way for gun control. Is that just a hypothesis, or is this something that you've quantified in some way? Is there data, is there research to back that up? This is just a hypothesis. They've done experimental studies in which they have given uh, people scenarios and, as I was describing before, whether the framing was about um, the person or the dangerous weapons, they have been able to quantify quite a different uh, response to um, people's reactions to that. How confident are you of that hypothesis? Uh, we certainly think that that was a factor, but there's other factors um, at play as well that make New Zealand quite different from somewhere like the United States. Now, I know that probably a lot of media would have bristled a little bit at being seen to have been campaigning for a particular legislative outcome. Do you think they were actually consciously going, let's campaign for gun control, or was this more kind of an ancillary uh, 
effect of them just saying, we are not going to play the shooter's game. We are not going to give him the publicity that he wants. I think ancillary. So I don't think the media were proactively campaigning, but I think that they were reporting on concerns that existed uh, within New Zealand, both by the public and politically, which was this question of how did he how did he get together this arsenal of weapons that could do so much damage from one person in such a short time? So more putting the questions out there. How is this how is this possible? And um, I think that the media was you know it, it reflected public opinion, but also to some degree influenced it. But I certainly don't think it was a campaign. Generally, looking at the media reporting, it seemed people had tried hard to be responsible about what they were sharing rather than just reactively reporting everything that they that they could or knew. That the, the shooter's just so, such obvious desire for publicity backfired that people were disgusted by the idea, right, that, as you say, of, of actually participating in what was obviously his mission. And that helped to short-circuit this usual pattern. I think that's probably right, that it was such an extreme case. It was so obvious that he was um, soliciting attention. He'd, he'd sent his stuff out um, to you guys before he even started the attack that people were just repelled and sickened by that. So in the aftermath of these attacks, the media is always searching for someone to blame, and sometimes that gets pinned on the individual shooter, but you're saying in this case the media didn't look necessarily at individuals but more systemic causes? Yes, so it's pretty common for the commentary to focus on causal attribution, um, specifically who or what is is to blame, and that's often much wider than the, stu- uh, and the, than the perpetrator themselves. So it might be criminal justice, um, law enforcement, intelligence and mental health agencies are typically some of those who are blamed alongside politicians. But in this case, uh, maybe somewhat unusually, there was no agency who was held up as a culprit. Uh, so the the reports about the first responders were generally positive. The articles reporting on the police response um, generally praised them for acting rapidly and they intercepted the shooter quite quickly. Uh, emergency services responded uh, quickly and the health system's capacity for treating the victims was also applauded, um, as was... The government response generally reported in a positive light both here and overseas. So again, maybe this also focused the discussion on the wider um, societal and systemic factors rather than being able to say, oh, it was this agency's fault or if only we had have done this, it would have been different. Should the media actually develop something out of this, like a code of conduct or a way of covering these incidents, learning the lesson from Christchurch? I think that would be very useful discussions for people to have. Hopefully in New Zealand this is not something um, that we'll be facing again, uh, but internationally for the media to think about how they report on this and and what the consequences Um, might be of responding to someone who is doing something awful in order to garner that media attention. If the US, for instance, learned uh, from the Christchurch lesson, maybe the outcomes of their mass shootings would be quite starkly different. Is that that a possibility? Well, the United States obviously has a problem with 
guns as well. So that's yeah. that's something they need to address alongside the way they might report on things. But certainly there is some evidence uh, that by reporting all the details, it can lead to both copycat or retaliatory events. And also you could be incentivising people who see this as a, main, a, a means to gain a platform and express their ideology. And so there's the possibility of doing harm through media media reporting, and that's a discussion that needs to be had. Thank you so much for joining me, Susanna. Thank you. That was Dr Susanna Every-Palmer from the Department of Psychological Medicine at the University of Otago talking to Hayden Donnell there. And you can find links to her report and hear more of what she had to say about it on the MediaWatch page of the RNZ website.